Welcome to the Wack Attack Podcast. We have another episode for you guys here today. We're here with Clifton Larson Allen. They are the eighth largest accounting firm in the United States. Uh, we have Matt Winans, who is our accountant here at uh, Three Ventures, and Patrick Smith. Patrick, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having us here. Uh, Patrick Smith, I'm the managing principal for the technology industry uh, group for the firm nationally. Um, started my career actually in the Bay Area. Spent 14 years with uh, a couple of big four firms, um, about 11 years with uh, BDO, and uh, recently joined CLA back in uh, 2017. Um, spent my entire career w- working with technology companies, startups, through public companies. So I had a lot of experience working with these organizations, and I'm uh, looking forward to this discussion. Absolutely. We're, we're happy to have you here. That was fantastic. And you flew down from Seattle, yeah? I did. I did. Yeah, thank you very much yeah. for coming down to the studios in Northern California. I'm glad Matt got you over here. Matt, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, Matt Winans. I'm a, a tax principal at our Roseville office here in uh, California, sunny California. Been practicing roughly 17 years. Started my career in San Jose, similar to Patrick, and relocated up here a few years ago. Uh, my favorite story I like to tell is my kind of Cinderella story of starting with a bootstrap seed company, tiny company, maybe half a million in cap, and they just exited two years ago for three hundred million to a public company. So it's excellent kind of start to finish. Well, There's like a virtual fist bump across the table <laughs> here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Patrick, we're going to be talking about some advice here today. So I'm sure, like uh, most good pieces of advice that you're not paying for, you're not on the contract for. There's going to be some disclaimers. So do we have any of those to go over today? Yeah, just one. Before we get uh, too far down the path, we need to say as a quick disclaimer that our comments uh, here today are intended as general information um, and don't constitute any financial accounting or legal advice. Okay. Excellent. It's good for We've been lawyered. CLA, you've been covered. (laughs) We've we've seen, yes. Matt and Patrick, we are good to go. Okay, so if we are founders of a startup, obviously, and we want to go and try to get some VC money or some seed money, um, VC money is hard to get right now. Uh, obviously we're not necessarily in the most ideal market conditions from an accounting perspective, what should we be considering as a founder if we're looking to do this? Yeah. Well, I think when it comes down to raising money, just in general, um, whether it's, um, the team or the product, it comes down to credibility. Um, and one of the things you really don't want to have happen is that your accounting or your financials or your forecasts, um, don't, will stand in the weight of that, of that credibility. Um, So it's really important to have those things dialed when it comes to coming to ask for people for money. Uh, If you can't get your accounting right, you know, what else are they are they missing? Right. Because this is the back end of running a business. And if you're not organizing the back end, that says a lot about the way your business operates. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, just modeling, knowing your KPIs, understanding the uses of the funds. You know, what is it you're trying to do with the money that you're getting um, and and. That just all goes toward, you know, building that that story, that credibility that allows you to, you know, do the mission that you've you've tried to do with your startup. And we talked about this earlier, Matt, you know, uh, you went from uh, seed round to 300 million, you know, exit to a public company. Um, at least my experience and the people I know, it's easy to get money from people who you've already made money for. Um, so with that said, you know, from a perspective of uh, accounting, how important is it to not just have your accounting right, but always make sure that you're taking care of getting that insight to the people who are providing you with funds? I think having an open relationship with your financial advisors in all aspects is the most important thing. Having regular calls, 
we I've always prided myself as not charging by the six minute interval like an attorney does per se, um, mostly to facilitate that open line of communication. The goal being being able to update your clients regularly with immediate information, especially over the last couple of years with all the tax law changes. Mm-hmm. It's been a very dynamic environment that's changing constantly. Case in point, just last week, the IRS came came out and put the the stop on all ERC, processing all ERC claims. Right? SC employee retention credits? Yep. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And uh, so getting into that, you know, how would you sort of categorize the do's and don'ts for founders, um, you know, if they are looking to get in front of an investor and pitch them? I'd say having your ducks in a row right from the start clean financials, re- reconciliations done, short, sharp cap table. I'd say that's the most common thing we see that yeah. kind of gets passed on. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you'll see the shoebox accounting, um, everything on a spreadsheet. Um, it, <laughs> it just doesn't really uh, doesn't really fly with, with uh, folks who, wanna, who are writing checks. Um, you know, accrual, this is, and this isn't sexy, but accrual accounting is important. Um, the accrual accounting exists because it is, it does match, you know, revenue and expenses and period costs and, and so forth. You know, cash is king. Everybody's worried about, you know, their burn rate and, you know, how much money do we have? And that, that's also very important. You have to have both of those things. But from a management perspective, um, accrual accounting is, um, you know, is key. And you can always, from a tax perspective, do cash. Um, but being able to uh, effectively talk about the business, where the money is going, um, and, and the value that the, the investors are going to get out of it. Um, and also, you know, raising at the right time. You don't want to be, you know, too high of a valuation and, and try to, to maybe give away too much of the, of the company too early. So, you know, those are the things I think that you would want to make sure you're thinking about. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. Go ahead, Cruz. Do you want to just give your experience and insight on timing? Uh, in terms of... Raising raising. raising <laughs> So I think a lot, of, a lot of founders think they need to raise as much as they possibly can. Um, and, and a lot of them also will maybe uh, take the first money that's offered. Uh, I really think it's important to make sure that you need to be as diligent about who you're um, raising money from as much as they're worried about you know, giving you money because that's going to be a relationship going forward. Um, and then, you know, from a timing perspective, it's also, okay, what's, you know, what's the valuation that, you know, everyone always thinks their valuation is higher than it is. But if you, if you go out too high too soon and you get more money than you need, you may be giving away too much of the business too early. Yep. So it's just a, that that's where you've got to really kind of think about, you know, maybe it isn't, you don't, maybe you don't need 10, maybe you need five, maybe you need yep. Man, manage, manageable chunks. Yeah. And, and, how- and that'll... That where where you can get the bounce where the like the the five the two or the five is going to get you to twenty versus a ten might get you to fifteen kind of thing so you want to think about that yeah it's, Second, a, it's a little steps. thinking ahead too because yeah. I feel like one of the things that you want to do as an entrepreneur especially if you're raising money is you know realize whatever money you do take that you obviously want to get to that next milestone with because yeah. you're trying to increase valuation you know um, I think startups are really focused on. Uh, sort of IP and, you know, where their opportunity really exists in the market as ter- I call it sort of, a, um, you know, subjective uh, valuation, right? Depending on who's writing the check. Um, but from that perspective, you know, if you are talking about quote unquote shoebox accounting and making sure you have your ducks in a row and then also setting yourself up to where you can get to that next milestone, 
you know, from a, an accounting perspective, if we're starting at, say, like a seed round, mm-hmm. what is the difference that you guys are sort of uh, expecting or, or would advise a startup to have at a seed round versus like a series A or a series B? if they're trying to get to those next milestones? Because I think this is a, a good topic depending on where you're at. I mean, yeah, I mean, from a, from my perspective, like a seed round, as soon as you have enough money to pay a proper professional to do accounting, you should do that. Um, having reports that, that look proper and that can be read and that can be understood by investors, I think that that's important. Usually in the seed round, it's all expenses, right? I mean, th- it isn't a heavy lift, right? Because all you're doing is spending money, right? Um, when you get to that, you know, Series A, and now you're hiring employees and likely having revenue, um, that that life gets a little more complicated. And then you really want to have that good foundation that you had at Seed and build on that as you grow. Nice. And if you guys are, say, uh, helping out with uh, providing financials to these investors or uh, to some VCs, what are some of the common issues you are having to deal with so that we can help anybody who's in this state start to get into that mindset of, you know, these are some of the things that I'm going to be coming up against and, and what should I prepare myself for from a hurdle perspective with this accounting? I think sales tax and tracking sales tax as you grow into that revenue model is a right. big sticking point. That's one I commonly see. Um, having the cap table hammered down, as far, especially with stock options, making sure that's tight. If you go into that Series A and that's not tight, you're going to have to figure it out anyways in diligence. So you might as well have it so you're looking a little bit better when you go to raise that fund. And can you explain a cap table to somebody who doesn't know what that is? Yes. So a cap table is the ownership of the company, right? And so you may start at being a founder or co-founder or a couple co-founders. And as you go through the process and you onboard folks or you bring people into your project, you decide, hey, I want to give these people a little bit of equity in the business as an incentive or maybe it's to mitigate cash flow or some combination thereof, um, that they become owners and that's part of that cap table process. And so um, we commonly see, like with a seed round, people tend to do a little bit more of that shoebox approach. And then as you start to develop, I'd say, critical mass and momentum, it needs to get tightened up, um, particularly before a big funding event, because what ends up happening is if you have, let's say, a software engineer that you didn't make an owner, and you weren't really sure where the company was going to go. And now all of a sudden you have a real offer on the table to fund it. Well, that offer is now pegged the value of what that company is per share, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's 5% or 10%. And so now to get ownership into that software engineer and say, hey, you know, we're going to make you whole and bring you into the ownership circle. That's an equitable, that's, a, that's an income event, a taxable income event for that owner. And that's a painful situation. To yeah, and he it. gets it at a higher rate, not the lower rate. He gets, yeah, it's ordinary income. It's non-cash, mm-hmm. right? So now you've got to pick up $100,000 of income and pay tax on it, but there's no cash. Yep. So it's a, it's a bad answer for, for everybody involved. Um, and and in, this might be a, a good point to kind of pivot back to, you know, like entity type. Um, when it comes to you know structuring a business and, and how to pick you know what entity type because you know there's LLCs there's C corp there's S corp partnerships so there's a lot of different choices out there when you're starting a company mm-hmm. um, and having that right entity choice uh, can really impact how you you can raise money expand upon that so um, 
in the startup space in technology, the, I think the go-to entity is a C-Corp. Um, there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, one, there's this t concept of qualified small business stock, um, which gives you a really preferential uh, treatment if you hold it long enough. Um, professional money understands C-Corp. They understand what preferred stock is. They understand equity compensation structures. They there's no ambiguity as to kind of how these things are structured. They're, they're all pretty much the same. So when I'm when I'm writing a check, if I'm an investor, I know my preferred stock is going to have the, this treatment, and there's going to be common stock, and then there's going to be a carve out for your option pool. Um, a lot of startups like to um, pick an LLC taxed as a partnership because it's easy. You can do it online. You can. Do it yourself. Please um, don't use LegalZoom. <laughs> <laughs> they, they also start as a sole proprietor usually, and that's the first legal yeah, step. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, so what ends up happening is, and there's usually no documentation. There's no understanding of the agreement. Um, and you can end up giving you know LLC units to one of your engineers, and no one really knows what that means. And there's a lot of complexity around partnerships and LLCs, and that's why investors don't love that structure because they can be they're very flexible um if you need flexibility they're great um if you're if you're running a lifestyle business if you know what i mean yep where you're just yes, we do turning out cash and you're going to go buy your boats and your cars and you're just having a good life um versus building enterprise value by reinvesting any of the funds back into the business llc's are great for lifestyle businesses because you can suck all the cash out um, C-Corps in the tech space are going to be really good for kind of reinvesting that money, growing that enterprise value, because that's going to be the best thing for the VC and the, and the investors going forward. So understanding kind of what entity you want and where you, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? <laughs> What's your exit? What's your exit plan? What's yes. your exit plan? So we had a really good episode um, called Running a Business with Family and Friends. Mm. And it was Curtis and Wally and I on it, and it was about our experience uh, largely going through having to, you know, make sure our, our books are all in order and everything else because uh, we have a couple, you know, we have LLCs and a C-Corp and Account items. and Accounting, legal, and financial growing up. Right, and yep. what really sort of comes to mind is when you guys talk about that shoebox accounting approach, um, really, I think, from the start, if you have an idea or something you want to execute on, you should be just as diligent with your corporate structure, with your accounting, as you are with being passionate about the product or service that you're trying to offer. Because fundamentally speaking, it seems like it would be um, most advantageous to allowing you to pivot or move quickly if you do meet that right person who believes in you or believes in the area of opportunity that you're currently trying to get into. If you just had all this right in line, like imagine yeah. if you had it in a package, it's literally just a zip file. You downloaded it, NDA signed, boom, shoot it over to them. Have a nice day. Thanks for playing. Yeah. So, now, yeah. It, so, do you guys ever see that, or do you guys have some type of framework that you sort of uh, can recommend that helps package that up? I work with a lot of attorneys that get it, right? That's the thing, that, and and they know I get it, so we we work well together. So when they're working with our startups and they're putting the the package together, um, they 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 get it. We don't do legal work. Um, as accountants, uh, we can suggest structures, but you know the actual legal structuring is done by by the law firms. So we uh, we we regularly you know uh, partner with law firms and make sure our clients are you know structured properly. Yeah. So somebody who is uh, let's just say starting up this idea out of their garage or you know mom and dad's basement or whatever mm -hmm. have you, 
Um, and they obviously don't have access to those types of resources. Uh, any types of uh, tips or recommendations on trying to do your best to keep things current until you can afford to work with a CPA or an attorney? I'd say the first thing is get a, at least a dedicated credit card and just track things as bifurcated as you can and silo it to, an, to the best extent you can while you're kind of getting it moving. Um, circling back to... And, and bank account. And bank account. Credit yep. card and bank account. Just keep it... Keep that separate. And circling back to your comment about keeping things clean and tidy and quick, um, a nice little war story I have is I had a client that was ra- just happened to fall into potentially raising some funds. The challenge was they had a cap table with an employee who had exited. They didn't know where he was. They couldn't find him. And they needed to get him to help with the due diligence to at least agree to the next round of funding. And they, he was nowhere to be found. So it kind of held up the deal. Yeah, I mean, Ouch. That's, yeah, that's a, actually another good another good um, example of where um, the the entity selection, um, the type of stock you're issuing, because if it was a, if it was a non-voting stock, this probably wouldn't have been a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you but know, since it was, that, yeah, yeah, then it was, and now it's a problem. Uh, the other areas that I see being really kind of gnarly are these the, what I would refer to as a post-it note um, cap table, where uh, you've like, oh, oh yeah. We'll get you. We'll get you the stock. We'll get you the equity, and it's sort of been kind of a memo item, but it's never, they never, you know, never did the deal, never issued the stock, but there's a promise out there in an email. Yes, and, you know. <laughs> there, there's, there's written proof, but there's not actual corporate proof in Correct. the books. And I, th- this is one of the the big realizations in just talking with a variety of people and businesses, and there's you actually have to run the the corporation the way the corporation's meant to be run and what you get is like a staple item from LegalZoom or something doesn't come with how you're supposed to run everything. Correct. And that's the biggest thing. I mean, you guys said like a credit card and a bank account. Then like just for, that's from an accounting perspective, from a legal perspective, working with someone to say, what is the minimum obligations that I need to meet as an owner of a corporation with my other owners, board of directors, what is the state that I'm incorporated in require me to do? So that way you actually have an organization that's functioning by the law. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I, it's, yeah, that's so key. Um, you know, the, the other thing that you want to think about too, from a equity comp perspective, when you've got this corp and you're trying to raise money and you've got, you know, an equity comp, structure that you're maybe you've issued um restricted stock well there's this concept called 83b there's a a, an option when you receive restricted stock basically it's okay i'm going to give you 100 shares um and then they're going to vest over uh four years okay uh the value of the shares today is probably close to zero your startup company you have you know you just raised a little bit of money but it's you know it's basically going to be par value stock right well, you have the option of saying, and there's no taxable event because it's restricted. The taxable event occurs as these restrictions lapse over time. So over time, the value of the company could go up. So let's say in year one, the value was a dollar. Um, in year two, it was $3. In year three, it was $5. It's $2 a year. Well, if if you, when those restrictions lapse, you have to pick up non-cash income for receiving that stock of that value. Do that every year. And now you as the shareholder are on the hook for paying that tax. Well, section 83B allows you to say, 
yes, I re- I've received restricted stock, but I'm going to elect to take the into income the value of that stock today. So if the value is close to zero, no harm, no foul, right? You say, okay, even though it's restricted, I'm going to pretend that I received the stock and I received all the income from it. And at that point, the income is zero. So as this stock vests over the next four years, nothing happens. You've already, the tax event has already occurred on the day you receive that stock. Because you've already basically, in quotes, assumed ownership. Correct. Yeah. And taken into income any of the, if, you know, if it was worth a dollar and you got a hundred shares, okay, you got a hundred bucks income. Have a nice day. But what happens is what can happen is they either fail to file the 83B because it has to be filed within 30 days of the grant. Um, or yeah, they either fail to do it or something happens where it didn't get registered with the IRS. And then, you know, five years later, it's all vested. First of all, you haven't really taken all the income in when you're supposed to. So you've got that exposure. Amendments. Yep. And now you exit all of that income is ordinary. Oh, wow. Not long term. Not long term capital gain. Because you didn't start your clock. 100%. So, yeah, bad answer. Um, and there's, there's no, Damn. and there's no, believe this is something I've been dealing with a lot recently is either bad 83B elections made. Um, I had a, I had a client who, <laughs> poor guy, he packaged it up, he put it in the mail. There's a, there's a, a mailbox rule that says if, if the, if the, uh, the U.S. Postal Service, you know, stamps an election of, of, you know, a tax election, that that's the, that's the date you've made the election. Um, he gave it to the post office. They failed to stamp it. It got lost in the mail. It was returned to him like two months later. There's no stamp on it. There's no nothing. I mean, we can't even hang our hat on, on the mailbox rule. Um, and his 83B election didn't get made. I mean, he did so, all the stuff. So he could do it again for the next year. So he would want to start his clock as quickly as possible for the next year. Well, no, because you have you know, it's a thirty day. You can't. There's there's nothing to do. Oh, oh, it, oh. Okay, it's not presented like the yearly. It's like no. you got to get it straight away. Otherwise, by the time it does come due, then Correct. you're subject to that taxable event. And you know, the, the I would say the the worst part is most startups are never going to amount to anything. So we've always called you know, stock options <laughs> rough, rough toilet toilet paper. So well, it's toilet true, paper though. stock. You're yeah, gonna yeah. basically yeah. pay taxes on um, something that's you know I would say ninety plus percent of the time worth nothing. You know, and so it's uh, definitely advantageous to maybe send three copies in if you're going to use snail mail and, you know, go with the first one that makes it there. So I totally, totally on the same page. I wanted to to set something up here. So how could, let's let's put a hypothetical scenario here. Let's say you're an employee startup. How can you make sure that your paperwork is filed within that 30-day window? Do you have to file it yourself or from the company? Like. Let's maybe put a, a scenario out here to help people who might be in this situation. Yeah, yeah. My advice on any mailings going forward is certified return receipt. Absolutely. Um, I think, especially with COVID, we've seen a decline in reliability in the USPS, and so I, I advise any of my clients certified uh, return receipt has to happen, even for for filings themselves. Yeah. Um, most of the things we do today, today is digital, but if you have to paper file it, that's the way it should go. Take yeah. it straight to the post office, get your receipt, deliver it yourself to them, pay for it on the selfie. spot. Selfie. Yeah, yeah, selfie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the other thing to, to, you know, if you're an employee of a startup 
and you're being offered options, um, have your accountant get an accountant, hire somebody, come come to a professional and say, here's the plan, here's the offer agreement. Is there anything I need to be thinking about? Mm-hmm. And the answer will be yes. Where's where's the 83B? Normally what will happen is those agreements have a, the 83B as part of the agreement. Um, and if you're working for a company and they're offering you stock and that's not part of the package, then um, you need to t- you know raise that as an issue and, you know, Tell them to go hire somebody to help them with their stuff and things because um, that's that's should be standard op. And yeah. on the and on the flip side of that, as a business owner or a startup owner, you want to invest and protect your people. And what does this say when you miss a thirty day window by one not being disciplined enough to understand what the laws are, and two by not giving your people the best protection when you offer them something. That says a hell of a lot about who's running the company. Yeah. And I mean, to, and to, to just put an a exclamation on, on at the end of this, um, I had a transaction. Um, they, they had the deal. The deal was done. Uh, it was, call it $10 million deal. They had one shareholder who didn't do the 83B and was going to get ordinary income treatment and in order to get the deal done, they had to pony up. They had to basically cover the tax cost uh, for this one guy. And so the the economics of the deal had to change because of this this issue. Oh, and shit. it wasn't it wasn't insignificant. Wow. So I mean that that's well, yeah, ordinary income on ten million. Do the math. Yeah. Yeah. That gets to the point of the fact that you know um, you're 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 playing in the professional arena. And so T's have to be crossed, I's have to be dotted, and at the end of the day, that's what it really comes down to. Um, so, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier from the company side, you know, reaching some milestones for, um, you know, the next rounds of valuations. Um, when do you guys normally see uh, a startup or somebody in a seed round start to get to the point where they n- are going to be working with uh, a larger group inside of CLA or a larger group inside of an attorney's uh, office to help them start to manage these issues at scale. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would go with um, when you have significant revenue and employees. So what is what, what is, is your significant? De- Thank you. <laughs> um, I don't know a million ARR. Um, but really, it's going to be a function of, of employees and where they live and where your customers are. Well, and it could also be capitalization, right? Because we've seen some fairly like non-revenue generating companies that have a large cap because they've been bootstrapped. And so the kind of segueing a little bit here, I think the, the mentality shifted a little bit in the last 10 years where it used to be, hey, I have to go get outside funding to maybe I'm going to bootstrap this thing myself run it for a while and see where we goes. And I have several clients that have done that. They've exited large companies or what have you, and they just say, it's mine. It's 100% mine. I'm going to run it. And they, and they have deep pockets to do it. And so they can hire the staff. They hire the engineers. They do it all themselves. They're not necessarily generating revenue, but they have enough sophistication and enough things going on that at that point it's time to start bringing in more than one professional and looking at things, you know, and keep making sure corporate hygiene is proper. Yeah. Well, I think that gets back to the point you guys mentioned earlier about, you know, not bringing in too much too fast, not giving away too much too early. 
you know, that's sort of the whole mentality of bootstrap. Bootstrap doesn't mean, you know, self-funding it yourself until you're making money. It's self-funding it to minimize the amount of people you have to bring in initially, because at, at least this is my experience. Um, the people who are brought in first usually get a higher percentage of the pie. People who right. are brought in later get a lesser percentage of yeah. the pie. Your key hires for sure. And I, uh, bootstrapping is like, is just being disciplined. Like, what do you really need at this point in time? Right. right. And I, and I think, you know, Matt made, made a good point. And that was kind of, I think we were both, both saying the same thing, but coming at it from different perspectives is when you have enough capital or money to hire 10, 12, 20 people, where those people live, um, where they're operating in the country, out of the country, multi-state, that's when things start getting complicated. So you can be a small company and have big company problems. <laughs> um, uh, Stop talking to us about this. We know. We know. Do you have a plug in the back of our head? Could you, <laughs> could you expand on that, please? <laughs> Uh, well, for example, if you, I mean, especially in post-COVID, mm-hmm. I mean, remote workers, um, basically wherever you have an employee, you you have what's called nexus or a connection to a state. Um, if those employees decide to work, I don't know, outside the country in Singapore, per se, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you may have a, a what's called um, permanent establishment in a foreign country. Um, so, you know, those, those sorts of things then now have to be evaluated. I'm only laughing because when I went to Singapore, I came back and told Alan, I said, my, my wife and I could qualify to get a temporary residence over there. That's how much we liked it. Yeah. <laughs> and of all the places you're like Singapore. But also, yeah. you know, uh, let's say you're based out of California and you go to Colorado and you have mm-hmm. some people there. Well, you know, in the Denver tech center, which is where we had some people, guess what we had to have? We had to have foreign entity because we had payroll taxes mm-hmm. and then we had to pay the, um, city of income privilege tax from the city of Greenwood Village. Congratulations. Right? Economic, <laughs> I think it was employment privilege tax. Yeah, the employment privilege tax. This yeah. Privilege, right? This yes. was uh, pre-2020. And um, the the irony of that was the amount of like entity and legal structure we had to put in place multiplied by just having one person in Colorado. Yep. Like basically everything we had operating in California, we now had to multiply it to operate in Colorado. And then we had all these little nuances and accounting headaches and healthcare. administrative headaches, healthcare. Like, so yeah, it, it, I, I feel the pain. I, I understand. No, they do not make it easy uh, for businesses to operate. Um, they don't. And just in general, um, and kind of a personal uh, situation. My wife runs an Airbnb in our house. Uh, we're in Washington. Seattle, um, like the amount, like I'm a highly trained professional. Um, the amount of work I had to do to get her B&O tax thing set up and file those taxes every quarter and do like, I don't know how people who don't have accounting backgrounds can operate. Or they're just not, they're not doing it correctly. And they're just well, doing that. It to, <laughs> they're just doing it to the best of their abilities. Right. And, and fingers crossed. So that's just, a, a, my, my point is that, you know, they don't, they don't make it easy. Well, um, I, I think to touch on that a little bit, circling back to the big corporate problems, even if you're a small company, is having that relationship with your service providers, right? And calling them ahead of time and saying, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. You know, you've probably seen it before because you serve a bunch of clients like me. You know, do you have any suggestions? Because case in point, we've had clients go out and set up foreign subsidiaries and they don't realize the compliance that comes with a foreign subsidiary for having an employee there. 
It's yes. pretty, pretty nasty. That, I'm so glad that you said that. This is one of the reasons. We say like a legal triad, mm-hmm. right? Legal, tax, mm-hmm. and why am I drawing a blank? On the Attorney, comment? financial advisor, and CPA. Financial advisor, thank you. Being able to call people like you guys who you work with tons of various different clients and different businesses and just saying, this is what I'm looking to do. What do you recommend? That is worth all of the money you you guys get paid for anybody who's running a business because you get to avoid a critical misstep. It's going to come with sucking your time and your money on a critical misstep. And I think this this conversation lends itself really nicely into what's been going on the last few years, which has been full-blown remote work mm-hmm. and how that's affecting the tech sector. And then talking about hybrid work and maybe being, you know, remote friendly in a state. So have you guys been advising any clients on those types of scenarios? Um, in so much as it's, I mean, because really you don't ever really want the, the tax tail wagging the business dog, right? True. You, you, you really want to run your business effectively and efficiently. And if it's important to the employee base to have remote work, then you should probably have remote work. Um, but then understand it comes with a cost and of time and money and, and effort. Um, so, you know, when it comes to advising on that, that's kind of how I, I, I usually, you know, advise on, on things like that. Um, well, sorry, yeah, sorry no, to interrupt there, no. but let's talk about the due diligence we've both been yeah. going through recently. Cause we have, we have several clients exiting currently. And so we're both on due diligence calls with potential buyers and, Typically in that process, they have to flesh out all the problems, right? And so yes. let's talk about employees and remote workforce. The things they look for are 1099 versus W-2 employees and misrepresentation, mis, uh, right? If you're t- treating a 1099 employee as a W-2, then you probably have some exposure there, right? And they are, now they're going to reduce the valuation based off of potential tax liability, based off potential penalty liability, yeah. and then litigation too as well. Yeah, I mean, it'll go into the, into the holdback or the escrow of the deal, right? They're going to add up all of the exposure items and say, okay, well, there's a million dollars of tax exposure here, so we're going to, you know, here's of your $10 million deal, here's nine, and then this million dollars is going to be held in escrow for two years or whatever. Just in case something happens. Just in case something happens. So yeah. let's talk about that a little bit. How, in in that case, have they miscategorized a 1099 versus a W-2? Well, it comes down to the employee versus independent contractor rules regarding control of work time, uh, tools, you know, products, things like Location, that. Location, doing your work, when you do your work. Yeah, who does? It, yeah, how they do it. And and do do, do does the t- uh, 1099 contractor have other clients? Mm-hmm. Um, actually. Being in um, in Washington and close to you know the Microsoft headquarters, um, they they got nailed hard uh, with the contractor versus employee because they'd have, they'd have employees that then would pit, then would leave the company that would pivot to contractors. Job stayed the same, and the IRS came in and said, "No, you can't. This isn't this isn't right. They're employees. They're acting as employees. They should be treated like employees." Um, so when you uh, when a Microsoft employee leaves and they want a contract, they have to go through another firm, and then then you have to have this list of things that you that they have, such as other customers, um, their own equipment, they can have control over their own schedule, that kind of stuff. Yep. Now, varies by state by state. No, it's it's pretty much a federal federal, a federal rule. Well, I, I guess California, California is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 
if you, yeah, you want to go down the down the Uber? Um, no, no, no. <laughs> so basically, if you don't tell them when to work, if you don't provide them with any equipment, and they have the ability or have had other clients, not necessarily they currently have them, they're generally a contractor. They could. They could. Can be. be. Yeah. I, I want to throw. <laughs> I want. I want to throw a stipulation to this, just from a tech perspective, not an accounting perspective. You can actually need to send somebody who would legally be considered a contractor hardware for them to do their job because it may contain access to certain systems. Right. 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 As long as their full job isn't solely working for that company and they have other clients. And w- yeah. Where it's, it's a case by case. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. you have to look at each facts and circumstances around each employee uh, contractor uh, candidate. Yep. Okay. Now, now is it arguing your innocence in the case of you guys, since we're talking tax code? Or, or is it more defending why you should remain innocent? I think it's more just the buying an insurance policy for the for the purchaser. Yes, right. That's really what it's leaving the money in escrow. So it's oh, f- from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. The escrow piece. Yeah, I mean that's essentially what it is. Right. Um, it's yeah, contingent exposures. And yeah. there's there's usually indemnifications too on the yep. seller side, saying I'll own it. You know, if something comes down, if you're if you're buying the company and it was it was my company, I am den- I'm indemnifying you from any obligations I generated. Right. I can't transpose my problems onto yeah. you. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. That's a, a, a unique slippery slope, right? Because there's this whole yin and the yang. We talked about the inside being, it's incredibly hard to even run the infrastructure or the operations to having employees in multiple States. But then you're going to get penalized for having contractors. Like for example, the issue with, uh, say wanting to hire somebody really good, you find, but maybe they're in Arkansas, right? And they only have one person in Arkansas. Well, you're not going to set up shop in Arkansas, um, and then everything that comes along with that benefits, retirement, all that other stuff, and foreign entity filings, etc. That's sort of why I think uh, places like Trinet and other outsourced HR are so popular because they handle and do all of that for you. Yeah. <laughs> do you guys see any issues with valuations if they are working with companies like Trinet or uh, third-party HR solutions? I, I, I wouldn't see – I haven't seen any negative impacts. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, that's – I mean, to, to me, it's a, just a good example of using another good third-party provider um, when it comes to you know, managing the business. Yeah. From employee mobility, I would say the only other thing to be aware well, one of the other things to be aware of is being remote is great. It's it's kind of a nice carrot to provide your employees, right? But they, they also need to notify you on what they're doing and where they're going if they're going to be working anywhere other than their home rem- home remote location. So if you hire somebody in Arkansas and they travel and they do an Airbnb for three months in Hawaii because it's COVID yeah, and the shutdown. Yeah. Well, now you've just generated potential filing obligations in Hawaii. Or if they travel to India for a month, like, you know, a lot of engineers will travel to India and stay there for a month. Now you've created permanent establishment in India and you may have an Indian issue as well. Wow. Yeah, this is something that's uh, really interesting. So now we're getting out of the accounting world and out of the legal world and into like the fractional HR services talking about, you know, like employee handbooks or contractor handbooks or, you know, company policies um, you know, and it's interesting because a lot of the stuff that you guys have just talked about, we have some policies internally, but, uh, we never would have been able to come across them if the lady who's running our operations and our HR hadn't managed sports authorities, uh, 125 stores in the East coast and, you know, Connecticut in that awesome. area. Um, so yeah, we got a, a firsthand sort of establishment in yes. that. And 
Um, that's pretty wild. But, you know, pulling this back up to uh, sort of the accounting side of things, um, you know, uh, multinational companies, uh, there's some cases where you do have to be multinational. Say you want to service North America or let's say you're in Canada and you want to sell in the United States. What are some considerations there that they need to pay attention to in terms of equity or transactions, et cetera? You're going to have a few things right off the gate. You're going to have a potential local presence and a local filing obligation. So whether it's GST or Canadian, you know, you, you may have a filing obligation there if you're pract- if you're selling in Canada. Um, you're also going to have potential transfer pricing. So if you set up a foreign subsidiary in, say, Canada, and they're selling product, and they're selling product from the U.S. parent, well, Canada probably doesn't want you doesn't want you sucking all those profits back to the, to the U.S. via some sort of management agreement or what have you. They want you to pay a little bit of tax in Canada because it was earned there, which right. is a reasonable expectation. And so there's what's called transfer pricing where you establish what that margin should look like to recognize those profits in those local jurisdictions. Nice. And that's why there's a lot of the issues with Ireland right now with people moving their money through there. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, before um, the the new international tax regime was put in place, Ireland was a very popular place to establish your foreign base of operations. Um, and there was 12.5% tax rate. Um, and basically, if you kept all of your profits outside the U.S., you could, you know, not pay U.S. tax on those profits until you repatriated them. Um, the the new international rules sort of kind of put a kibosh on those on those strategies. Well, I'm glad I brought that up. Can you explain some of those rules? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, if you've got um, operations outside the U.S. but you don't have a lot of substance, you don't have a lot of people, you don't have a lot of equipment. It's really just sort of a strategy, a strategy, a a, a file box that uh, then the IRS will make you pull those profits back into the U.S. Um, it's called guilty, um, which is, you know, is I, that an acronym? It's, it, it is an acronym. OK, I, yeah. if, global if you can, intact, yeah, global, oh, intangible yeah. taxable income. Yeah. So <laughs> guilty, yeah. <laughs> low tax income. Yeah, low tax. And there it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I'm sure that the that was designed to be ironic. Um, that is, or, that or is a little, or a little, or a little too on the nose. Yeah, uh, don't you think? And um, guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so basically, you end up having to pull that income back into the U.S. anyway, right? So there's no, there's no. Um, uh, benefit or um, encouragement to keep it offshore. Um, so you, which is which is the other thing that that they changed was the corporate tax rate. So before 2017, the corporate tax rate was 35 percent. 35 percent. Yeah, it was graduate progressive graduated, but kicked up pretty quick. Um, the uh, the 2017 act dropped the rate to 21 percent. So 20, flat flat corporate rate. Yeah, right. and the crazy thing that doesn't make any sense to me is if, I mean, you were uh, sort of educated on you know global economic affairs, you would realize we should have just made it twelve point five percent, because then not only every U.S. company would have came to the United States, every company in the world would have came to the United States. States. Yeah, that's Congress for you. Um, uh, so, but but what it did what it did do is close the gap, right? So these these guilty were, people was, these was the the these structures 
I refer to them as mobile income structures where you can kind of kind of move your money income to low tax jurisdictions. Twelve and a half to to thirty five, thirty seven, that's a pretty big delta. It is. You can make some. You can do some hedging there, and and you know make some money doing that. Twelve and a half to twenty one percent. You know the care and feeding of a large, you know structure like that, kind of eats into the benefit of keeping that money offshore. It's it's little little. It seems like it would be a little gain for a lot of effort. Correct. So I think that's what you're seeing now is that there's fewer of these um, opportunities. You know, most of my clients I'm I'm seeing now there's there's a rule where. If you've got an entity, let's say in uh, Germany, okay, um, and you know there's transfer pricing, there's all this stuff. If it's a controlled foreign corporation, you can kind of keep it separate from the U.S. business, but for tax purposes, you can elect, pretend like it's a branch. So you check the box and say this is a branch of the U.S. company. Its activity is the U.S. company's activity, and that all gets reported on one tax return in the U.S. Still regarded corporation for German purposes, so that entity will file a German tax return. But what this, what checking the box and creating it as a branch does, it eliminates a ton of issues, and there's no guilty calculation because all that income is already being reported in the U.S., and so it just makes life a lot simpler. Wow. So how does that benefit the company that's in the United States because they're paying taxes within Germany? But they're electing that this is a corporation, this is a branch of their entity in the United States, and it's, so it's on their U.S. tax returns. Correct. So it, it is important to point out too that there is foreign tax credits. So yes. to and that mitigates the double taxation effect. So if you're paying tax in Germany, there are mecha- mechanisms with those elections to make sure you're utilizing those credits against your U.S. income tax on the income that's essentially getting double taxed. Right. So uh, it mitigates okay. that double taxation effect. But I do think is that long-standing or is that only for a temporary measure? No, that's, of time? that's been in, yeah. in in place for decades. Got it. Um, I, I do think while we're on the topic of international, though, it's important to point out that from an income tax compliance perspective, it's very punitive to miss the filings related to international compliance. So whether you're talking about a controlled foreign corporation or a, f- a foreign disregarded entity, those failure to file of those forms. Can carry some significant penalties per year, like 10k, yeah, 25k, yeah. you know, per year per form. So if you're talking about a multinational and you decide you, you're gonna go set up three or four foreign entities for your U.S. parent co. How many forms is that per company? Uh, you know, per the, entity. Uh, so you have four, right? One, one per one, one per, per entity. Yeah, one, one per, per entity. It's just one per entity. Yeah. Okay. Well, and you likely have foreign bank accounts as well. So now oh, you start talking about. A foreign bank account reporting so now you got two so it, it can it can well, vary and these aren't like you know we say form it's like a 12 it's a it's a basically a tax return within the tax return um reporting the foreign activity or the activity of the foreign uh entity it's purely reporting there's no tax it's but it's you know the foreign tax credit calculation is probably eight or nine pages so do you guys see this a lot with tech companies that get a bunch of seed money here, but then they build development teams like either in South America or Eastern Europe or India? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And this year particularly, it was, it was punitive with the 174 provisions that required the capitalization of R&D. So with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, 
one of the balancing items was the requirement to capitalize research and development expenses starting in 2022. I know. I used to love straight lining it, baby. It was oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. No, no, it was deducting it currently. Yeah. I, I mean, just, you were getting the, the deduction today for uh, for everything you were. So for book purposes, a lot of companies had to capitalize, you know, under a gap. But for tax, it was like oh. straight lines. Yep. Yeah. Right, right, right at the right bottom. To, yep. Right to the PL. Yep. Now, now, not so much. And not only that, if it's domestic, you have to amortize it over five years. If it's international, it's 15 years. So you don't get, there's not a lot of benefit to taking it out. It hurt this year for a lot yeah, of yeah, clients. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, doing offshore, it's. Yeah. But everybody wants Amazon two day delivery or you know Prime <laughs> Now in my hand. But they're mad at Amazon for ruining the R and D credits. Have you guys seen get the, in the Yang? Have you seen the Ronnie Chang stand up from I think it's twenty nineteen on Netflix? I have not. Oh mm-hmm. man, he just goes into Amazon. He's like, everybody's in, Amer- in America's lazy. They're just like, press a button, put it in my hand now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's how I was laughing because obviously they were the biggest purveyor of uh, the R and D tax credit issue, right? But it makes sense because the- Amazon Web Services. Well, yeah, they were the the poster child for why it was evil, I guess. I don't know, or why Amazon was evil, because they paid very little tax because of the R&D credit and the the deduction. And they basically Um, created an industry, a a huge industry. Amazon pioneered the cloud industry. I'm pro-Amazon, just for the record. (laughs) Yeah, Um, us too. Yeah, just for sure. Well, considering that I live in Queen Anne and I overlook South Lake Union, where I know Amazon right where lives. you're at. Yes. I know right where you're at. Yeah. So stop yeah. speaking about such a beautiful place. It is. It is amazing. Although it was rainy and kind of crappy when I left, but it was welcome nice to, to come California, here. Patrick, <laughs> where the sun, sun shines all the time. All the time. Yeah. But um, no, when when all the Amazon stuff came down, I, I read the 10K. And I'm like, everything they did was legit. They had R&D credits, and the big, honestly, the biggest issue that that Save them from paying a lot of tax was their compensation, their equity comp, because all of their employees. The way I don't know if you know how Amazon. I'm actually somewhat familiar. I don't need to tell you why, but I'm somewhat familiar. So basically, you get everyone gets out like 165k a year, and then everything else is in stock. And so when Amazon stock does this, all the employees comp does this, and they get a deduction for all of that, and that's what really drove their their tax rate to so low. Is because they were their stock was doing so amazing and their people were making a ton of money. It's like, how can you beat up a company for that? You really can't. But it, you it, know, this I, is I, the I, downside. Just like it, it's the slippery slope. Sorry, it, it's it's <laughs> looking at things with the wrong lens. I mean, yeah. Amazon yeah. employs how many thousands of people? And if people were get, truly getting 165 base plus whatever their their amount of shares were at the, that time in the market, which they sold their stocks, that's good for the mass. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. we have a friend. He, you know, invested in like uh, uh, high five figures in stock mm-hmm. just the other day with Amazon. So, you know, it makes perfect sense. I'm right there with you guys. I think it gets back to the larger issue, which is the Ireland issue. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that was uh, probably the bigger reason why a lot of companies haven't been paying taxes. I mean, HP, you know, they were guilty in the early 2000s. They'd go. HP America, HP Mexico, HP, you know, uh, uh, Costa Rica, because I think that's where they were doing it back in the day. And, um, you know, I mean, every corporation has found a way to minimize the tax liability or tax uh, issue that they have through globalization. It's, you know, they were just, I think, the poster child for um, everything because they made life so convenient for everybody to have some time to think about things they wanted to be upset about. But with that said, we'll move on to the next topic. (laughs) Slippery uh, slope. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about how, as an entrepreneur, you can be proactive in I, no matter what stage you're in, startup or, you know, you've got 10 or $50 million that you're operating with. 
What can you do to be proactive uh, from an accounting perspective to always be ready for either that next round or that potential sell? I think closing the financials, you know, as quickly as possible each month, you know, quarter, quarterly, annually, yearly is the first thing. You know, it's I think it's a red flag when someone's not getting you their financial statement information until nine months after the year end when they're on extension and it's barely coming in. And October 15th. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, there are valid reasons for that if they have, ex, you know, exterior investments that they're waiting on information for, et cetera. But if, if the fundamental information isn't there and it's not getting closed quickly, you know, what's how do you manage a company when you don't know what your company did nine months ago to be, I, you know, flexible? I, I also feel like, yeah, you might not be able to provide everything if you're waiting for somebody to finish theirs in the, in the tax year and then you're relying on their information to submit yours. But you, you can do so much of the legwork for mm-hmm. you to just be ready to get their stuff and boom, you hand it off. So just that level of preparation would also, I assume, ease the tensions you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's super advice, actually. The Being able to have uh, quarterly financials printed that can be delivered at a moment's notice, I think, is huge. Um, you know, it's segregation of duties is another one I think would, it's really tough in an early stage startup because you don't, there's only probably like, you know, three or four people, but actually go through the effort of, okay, you're going to be responsible for approving AP and you're responsible for approving payroll and you're responsible, you know, divvy those duties up so that you at least have that feeling that, okay, we're really, you know, taking taking this seriously and you have to have the right approvals to get stuff done and put put a little bit of bureaucracy in, in place to to manage the business. It, it's completely necessary. Having read corporate bylaws myself, um, you're also obligated in a lot of circumstances, depending on the way yours are written, to be able to provide accurate financial information to certain people within the company upon them asking for it. Yeah. So that's another big one where if you asked in your like let's just say Alan, your CFO, I'm an exec at a company, I ask and CFO can't provide these things to me. That's usually, a red flag. Yeah, I'm usually have an obligation to be able to provide it, I think, like, you know, within fourteen days. Yeah. And you know, to another executive. You know, not to toot our own horn, horn too much, but we Color do have, <laughs> we <laughs> we do have like what we call business operations within CLA that does kind of the back office bookkeeping. And one of the things that it's kind of been fun is watching them integrate all the the apps and the technology to accelerate those monthly closes. And so we do have some clients where we have a five day, 10 day monthly close where five to 10 days after the month end, financials are rock solid. You're looking at one of them. Sweet. Yeah. Yes. That's uh, us. Sweet. Yeah. I, work, I, work, I think we work Fist with bump. your biz ops team, right? Yes. Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. They're awesome. And, yeah. you know, I think it's actually, uh, we did a little vision company vision workshop with the uh, uh, founders this past weekend. And, um, you know, we did this whole workshop, like, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? What are things we need to work on? And, you know, one of the things we are doing well is like everybody put in the financial accounting, reporting, everything else. So, yeah, shout out to the BizOps team in that practice because uh, we, are the, we are the people who close our books usually five to ten days uh, at the end uh, of uh, every month or after the end of every month. Yeah. It is it is wonderful. And I know that, you know, if the first, second, or third rolls around, I'm going to be expecting a couple emails about some accounting <laughs> related <laughs> items. Yeah. It always happens. Yeah. Well, it's also, yeah. I mean, you mentioned kind of running a business. It's like you have to have trends. You have to be able to understand what's going on. And mm-hmm. and getting it six months later, I mean, there's no time to fix anything. There's no actionability. Yeah. You just realize you're in a hole from yep. that you're point. Like, All right. And there, Alan, you could speak to this and jump in at any time. 
one of the really nice things about the way we run our operation is we're only 30 days behind. We get a look at what happened the last 30 days at the beginning of each month. So if there is a problem, we can rectify it very quickly. Yep. Yeah. 100%. Now, that monthly reporting package that I put together for us was largely predicated off of your guys' advice and the BizOps team. But what do you guys uh, recommend from a monthly reporting package perspective uh, for, let's just say, you know, mid-sized startups? Uh, they should, uh, you know, report their uh, their package monthly. <laughs> and the world goes around. Right yeah. <laughs> no, it, no, monthly reporting is, is, is I think, a really good example of, and kind of going back to the beginning, the credibility piece, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if if you go, if an investor comes in and they're like, "How do you run your business?" Well, we have our monthly meetings. He's in charge of the revenue piece, expense piece. We go through our KPIs. You know, we all understand where we are in the business. I'm going to feel a lot more comfortable yeah. writing yes. a check to that team than than just like, well, you know. Every six months or so, whether we need to or not. Well, I, but what specifically is in that BizOps package? Because, like, for example, you know, we have um, we do budgets versus actuals for the year, mm-hmm. and then we also in our budget, yeah, uh, yeah. we yeah. go over um, uh, like a cash flow statement. Mm-hmm. So, what do you guys have like a base set of reports that you would recommend to put in that reporting package? Yeah, you, you want that statement of cash flows, the P and L, the balance sheet. Um, monthly recurring revenue, probably by client. Um, I had an interesting conversation recently with a client where they didn't realize the residuals they were getting off of their revenue stream were so high. And my immediate thought was, have you reached out to the customer, you know, and made sure that you have a strong relationship with them and said, hey, we see that this is upticking, you know, and we just want to say thank you and, you know, make sure you're spending your energy where it needs to be spent, not from an accounting or a managerial perspective, but just from running the business, making sure that you're shaking hands knowing with your people. best clients. So Alan, I'd like for you to talk about that. We went through an exercise of knowing your best client, largely predicated by the financial reporting work and guidance that CLA had given us. Yep. Uh, pretty much it was along the lines of uh, not only who is our uh, best customer, but who's our most profitable customer, who has the longest longevity. Uh, what are the attributes of that? Um, you know, and so we built uh, and and disseminated sort of democratized reporting around that to uh, every one of our leaders in the business, so they can all log into our reporting portal and go and take a look at that and go see that, and go see where their clients stack up to what our best clients are, and who our best clients are, and what those attributes are. So yeah, it was a very helpful and very insightful, and it's uh, been crafting the larger strategy that we have here as a business. Um, you know, so for us, uh, that's what we have in our reporting package. But uh, it was it was also really nice because it gave a lot of transparency to the people that are helping us lead the business. You know, when they get to see their eyes on that stuff for the first time, you get to see some of the other gears start spinning in their head. Yeah. And that was really beneficial, too, because it immediately led into, well, how do we move clients from like this middle level tier to like the, the top tier where the, these are our best clients? Right. And that's really where everybody's head started right. thinking. And then all of these funny new things started happening where we had cross a lot more cross-team collaboration. We usually have it, but now it's like everybody's looking for it on a weekly basis. Yeah. So it's been really nice and healthy. Well, and to sort of answer your question in terms of like what's in a basic package, it's going to be the financials. But I think every business has a different... Uh, view uh, that they they want or need. Um, you had a specific view about your top clients and, and how you want to kind of drive your lower clients in, into that top tier and what activities can you do. 
it, that's going to be a discussion with with your your CLA team to say this this is the information we think we need. Can we get it from our financial data? And then we can build the reports and build the dashboards and do all the things to help you, um, you know, achieve the, that that information. So let's talk about that process then a little bit. What would the entrepreneur, the business owner, need to bring to you guys in terms of questions for you to help sort of set up and structure whatever their financial software is? Because there you got uh, um, accrual and gap, right? And that's mm-hmm. you know running the books. But you can also have it set up in other ways from a categorization perspective, where you can spit out reports that align more with how you see the business, less of generally accepted accounting principles. So, with that said, back up to the question: What do you think? they should be asking you or considering so that you guys can help them with those custom reports? I mean, t- to me, it's, it would be incumbent upon us to sit down with our client and say, all right, tell us about your business. You know, our, our uh, CLA promises to know you and help you. And the only th- way we can do that is understand your business. You know, what are, what are the KPIs that you're looking to, to achieve? What's going to help you run this business? And then it's that collaboration that will drive the outcome. So I don't know if it's as much you guys having to tell us what you want. It's this collaboration, this discussion. Hey, it'd be really great if I was able to see our sales not only by best customer, but by customer and geography, um, where their offices are. Um, Oh, okay. Our financial systems may not you know, capture that data today. So what do we have to do to make that change? Right. You guys are extrapolating through discovery what do you want the future state of your business to look like? That's a, uh, an approach that we take here with some of our lines of business where in order to learn the, the customer's business, there's a lot of discovery. And really, it's just working with sharp, talented individuals that ask those, those poking and prodding questions to facilitate the information from you to say, hey, maybe you, 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 know, you want to consider X, Y, and Z. And then that helps answer the question. There's a lot of business specificity there. So what I really heard you saying was call CLA. Who are you going to call? <laughs> CLA. Yep. Um, I mean, that uh, that is a really solid advice. I would say that it wasn't ever a skill that like I was taught by a business mentor or something else. Uh, to be totally honest, my accounting background and skills were largely from some classes I had in college. And also my wife is a little bit of a wizard with this stuff and then working with CLA. Um, what resources would you guys recommend either from CLA or out there in the uh, world to sort of help get entrepreneurs uh, aware or starting to think about, you know, keeping the financial health and uh, reporting readiness of their business up. Is there anything that you guys have internally, webinars, podcasts outside of this, anything else like that? Yeah, I'd say we push out content quite regularly. Patrick's name is on a fair amount of it recently as far as producing blogs and articles yeah, that get we have pushed. A, yeah, we have a tech blog that... Uh, yeah, we, I read one of yours the other day. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> um, I get the CLA I, emails. I, 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 rip, I, I rip most of it off. Chat <laughs> <laughs> GPT, help me. <laughs> when there's things that are like something that catches my attention, usually in the form of a large tax code change or you know, some general strategies, those types of things tend to get my wheels spinning. So when I have some free time, which seems to be like two days a month now, (laughs) I usually take a peek at a couple of them. Yeah. I mean, going back to it though, that's kind of my job, right? Is to know the client and help them and have that open conversation and to know the capabilities of CLA on the backside, right? So I kind of view myself as a quarterback. And so I have that relationship. And then 
whether it's biz ops, right? And you, you working with our biz ops team, we're also seamless on that side. And you, we don't do a good enough job of bragging about it, but just the other day, Jerry came over and said, hey, just want to let you know, Alan's doing this over there. I was just talking to him on the phone, blah, blah, blah. And so on our side, we're fully connected and we're communicating so that if she's, if you tell her something that sounds a little amiss and she comes and talks to me, I can call you back and say, hey, you know, what are you doing over there? <laughs> yeah, excellent. And it's happened before too. So let's talk about uh, anybody who's listening to this. They want to get in touch with you guys or CLA. How can they do that? www.claconnect.com. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Um, <clears throat> our our email structure is first name dot last name at claconnect.com. Okay. So Patrick.smith. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Matt Winans. Matt. I'm not even going to remember how to spell it, but I think there's two. There's an I, N, N, and another I, right? Uh, Matt with two T's and then a, a period and then W-I-N-A-N-S. Oh, I had to see. <laughs> I wasn't even going to try to do it myself. I would have messed up. Um, and then as far as uh, LinkedIn or anything else, are you guys big on LinkedIn? Oh, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a, a LinkedIn um, guru. I, I like the LinkedIn a lot. Very nice. So they can uh, just go search Patrick Smith, CLA, yeah, Matt Wine, and CLA. Top be 10. <laughs> <laughs> should be, should be top 10. Not, hopefully. I'm, it's that generic be. last so name you yeah, got there. Know. Smith. My, my, yeah. uh, it's a funny story. My wife um, didn't want to take my last name because when we would uh, come back into the U.S. from an overseas travel, she'd fly right through, and they're still looking for Patrick Smith. Patrick, where are you? Yeah. <laughs> well, you could always get global entry, you know, and that would solve that problem. Got it. And then sort of, you know, on some closing notes here, yeah. is there anything else that you guys want to bring up that's relevant to the conversation today that we haven't had an opportunity to chat about? Yeah, I think um, we've been kind of kicking it around a little bit. Like I mentioned earlier, just last week, they clamped down on the ERC credit piece. But I think that speaks higher to some of the other trends we're seeing, right, which is you know, you're starting to hear these social media influencers talk about tax strategies and ideas. And I heard a really funny one yesterday where somebody was saying something about how CPAs don't, the best kept secret and CPAs don't know about qualified small business stock or something like that. And I just thought like, really? Someone, someone out there is listening to a social yeah. media influencer rather than the people that, you know, went to school for six years to learn this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that's one of the big things. When, when Mr. Wonderful was selling ERC credits, I knew things were going to go sideways. Um, and so when the IRS came out and basically said, we're, okay, we're putting a stop to this. Who um, is Mr. Wonderful? Oh, from, from Shark Tank. Um, oh, what's his, I can't remember his name. Um, but he was one of the, one of the original Shark Tank guys, bald guy, always wears a black suit, black tie. Kevin. Kevin. Kevin, Kevin O'Leary. Kevin O'Leary yeah. had a YouTube, you know, selling ERC credits. And I'm like, that's not going to last. No, and it not. didn't. Um, so that's that's the stuff. What's interesting is I watch a lot of the uh, of those sort of podcasts about you know all of these schemes and stuff, and it's like, yeah, there's just you know consult an actual professional before so, going down a road. And uh, uh, okay, you, and the IRS has a list on their website of the top the top ten or top dozen dirty dirty schemes that they're seeing going around, and it's kind of funny because. Depending on when you log into the website, they seem to prioritize it. Right now, ERC is right at the top, but you know, you know, conservation easement, uh, conservation easements are oh, up those, there. Yeah, those have always been. A, yeah, a and monetized installments. Yeah, well, that, that didn't help with um, Yellowstone. Uh, the Yellowstone episode. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> 
I hear you. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, totally. Um, for those of you who haven't watched Yellowstone, uh, I think season five that is. But uh, um, <laughs> on that note, though, about some of the changes that have you know come down the pike, um, you guys talked about the ERC. That's em- employee retention credits. Is there anything else from a legislation perspective with the Inflation Reduction Act or anything else that you guys want to touch on? Yeah, you want to talk a little about R and D? Sure, I can talk a little bit about R and D. So, um, <clears throat> so the Congress giveth and Congress taketh away. So um, they they kind of clamped down on 174, capitalizing those costs, but they expanded the um, payroll offset for startup uh, and early stage companies uh, from 250k to 500,000. Um, so that R and D credit, because no, most early stage startups don't aren't profitable, so and a tax credit isn't going to be really helpful no. uh, if you're not paying tax. Um, and so this uh, payroll tax offset allows you, because these companies obviously have employees and they're paying the company's portion of payroll, um, that credit can offset uh, that payroll tax. So it's actually a cash benefit today against uh, payroll taxes paid by the company. Up to $500,000 in annual um, per employee. Oh, no, sorry, $500,000 dollars total per, per, per year. Per, yeah, per Whoa, year. $500,000 in I was, credit. I was thinking salary for the, each individual. Wow, that's huge. Yeah. So so basically... And, right it, now, and it carries over. Yeah. So if you don't have, if you don't have, you know, 500000 of payroll taxes that you're, you're uh, you know, responsible for, that credit can carry over. So you're telling me that um, five, up to five hundred thousand dollars in twenty years, in payroll tax credit. Was it, was it five years for the type payroll? Um, the, the first five years, the company's been in existence pre-revenue, essentially, or up to the first five million in revenue. The company, so it really is for startup companies. Yep. As yeah, opposed to mature companies, they boxed it pretty good. Yeah, yeah, but you got to think about it like this: if you're in the Bay Area and you got a team of twenty people, which is small, okay, you're probably going to have eighty percent of them be engineers, right? Mm-hmm. They're pushing one hundred and fifty on a salary, about on average. So you got 7% is California's uh, um, tax on businesses, uh, payroll tax. Mm-hmm. So you got- it's a, it's a federal credit, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you got, uh, 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 let's see here. 6.2%. Uh, 10, 10. Yeah. 10.5, or let's just say $10,000 per employee, right? You got 20 of them. Uh, that's $200,000 over the course of a year that you could now be getting back cash yep. in your pocket. Yep. That's pretty substantial. It's another engineer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it and, is. And so you're telling me that that now is um, it's up to five years mm-hmm. in business or five million in revenue? Was that yeah, the condition? Yeah, yeah. Come on, why do we have to be twelve years old? Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Sorry, but that's okay. Well, that's a really great incentive for startups yeah. as we're talking about you know investment opportunities well, and VCs, and, and it's only eligible on domestic R and D. So yeah. yeah, the credit is you can't you don't get a credit for local foreign. talent. Yep, but yeah. you know it, it, it circles back around about. You know, if you're that size, you should probably be working with a reputable CPA anyways, because those first five years pre-revenue, it's pretty important that you get that revenue number 100% right on that tax return. Because if it's off a little bit and maybe there's a misplaced credit that got picked up as revenue in one year, could cost you $500,000 of payroll tax credit because that starts the clock. Yes. Oh, I didn't think about that. That's a very good point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, and it's pretty brutal because interest will also start the clock. So... Yeah. Uh, interest income, um, so that that's deemed income so, on your tax. Yeah, the government yeah. always wants to tax us and uh, you know charge us interest whenever we don't pay them. But ha- whenever they don't pay us, it's like, oh no, here you go. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I want my interest on that too, please and thank you. Um, so, but with that said, uh, we covered off on the IRA changes. Um, any other items on the legislative front? Well, 
You said I mean, you said covered off on the IRA changes. Yeah, Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. also the individual retirement. Yeah, account. yeah. yeah. Different different topic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, there's still. I think there's still hope for 174 repeal. Can you explain 174 to people? So that's the capitalized R and D cost that we were talking about. The domestic gets amortized over five years, and foreign gets amortized over 15. Um, <clears throat> I think there were a lot of companies and a lot of um, clients who. I mean, when this thing happened, we said Congress is going to fix it. Congress is going to fix it. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Time went on, right? It's going to be fine, right? <laughs> and then and now we're at ten fifteen, and it hasn't been fixed. Um, and so, you know, we don't know if it's actually going to happen. Um, there, there's an extenders bill that's going to be coming around. It may or may not be in there. Um, and I know this isn't a this isn't a politi- political di- uh, statement. But Congress has been focused on other things. Yeah, oh, um, I'm aware. Disappointingly, and yeah. so this is the sort of stuff that happens um, and and hurts businesses uh, when they're not focused on the right things. Yeah, we've had I would argue eight years of distractions and uh, waste of Congress's time. Right, I could I could 100 percent get behind that. Yeah, um, and so you said that you know it was really. The major changes were the amortization schedules, five-year and 15 years mm. for domestic and foreign. What about visa workers? How do they count? And, uh, where the work's happening. It's, yeah, it's where, yeah, where the work is happening. If the work's it's happening on, the on U.S. soil, then it's domestic. Yeah, it's okay. the opposite of U.S. traveling to Singapore. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Right. So if you if you uh, outsourced all of your R&D to, to Eastern Europe, you know, then that's going to be foreign. But, you know, it's talking about current law, it's important to realize that the research and development credit and this 174 element has always been a political football. It's always the ninth hour pork rolling yeah. legislation that it gets marks. Yeah. It gets, it gets in. included with. And so I think that was why a lot of the industry thought 174, you know, it'll get rectified before 2022 hits. And it didn't. Here we are. And it didn't. And so now we're wondering, will it be a political football again or not? This is going to happen in 24. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Know. So just to to close out on on that topic, because I have I had a client that I this it was like the worst case scenario for this issue. Um, he got most of his funding from grants from DoD, so he was developing a really cool um, piece of equipment for uh, training dogs, and it's got a military application. He received a grant. Let's call it three hundred k. Spent it all in R and D because that's why you got the grant. For tax purposes, the grant is income top line. Add back your R and D expend. Now he's paying tax on the three hundred k. Wow, he's yeah. paying tax on the three hundred k. But if he did he offshore it? Well, it was all domestic. Okay, well, so he's he's, he's he only getting twenty percent of it because he got to do it over five years. Yeah, he's only getting ten percent in year one. Yeah, the year one's ten yeah. percent. Oh. Yeah, because it's five. It's it's a it's five year amortization, half year in the first year. So it's you only get ten percent in the first year. So he's paying tax on two hundred and seventy thousand um, dollars, but he spent all the money. <laughs> so why even right? file it as R and D? Why not just file it as straight line expense? Well, it, because it's R and D. But hold, I guess this is my own ignorance speaking here. <laughs> why do you have to file for R and D credits? So it's this is R and D expense. This is yeah. just you paid money to develop. You know, it's an R and D 
activity. Yeah. Oh, so this is about how R&D expenses are also categorized. So you can't even just say R&D is now a straight, you know, uh, on the tax basis, it's just a straight line out the bottom of expenses. They're no. making you now realize, oh, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, so this this cat who's, you know, I mean, spent all the money on R&D because that's what, you know, that's what his business is. But because it was a grant and it was considered income in the year that he received it. And the other sad thing is that the way his grants worked, he received another tranche just before the end of the year. Oh, no. So, so you get doubled up. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was a tough year. He was um yeah, the the messenger w- took a lot of grief. Um but uh <laughs> are they still with CLA? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean yeah. he gets it. I mean it's just it's just it's just a it's just a cra- it's just a crap answer. Um This it, there's so many times where a taxable event can like it's just totally screw you. So yeah. not knowing how it's going to work before you spend any money to your guys's point like i would have much rather pay it came out of the pocket you know ten thousand dollars to talk to somebody in the first place to offset a potential hundred thousand dollar cost or yeah. or at least know it's coming so you keep the cat a little bit of cash yeah. around for the tax and not just yeah. have to have yeah. it all spent well that's yeah. a, that forecasting bit yeah right yeah just had a, a a good conversation with a client um who's trying to forecast how much cash they need and and 174 has to come into play because it's your cash tax, right? Yep. Um, so understanding the 174 piece and, and how much of that is going to affect what cash is left over that they can distribute to the to the owners. So mm-hmm. it's very very critical. We, you know, we we had that this year unique to California too with the California storm thing, where you know we got a little bit of rain, and so the federal government said, "Hey, you guys can." <laughs> file your tax returns late and all your or not you're not late but it's deferred until deferred october 15th and so that included estimates right and so i had a lot of clients say well i'm not paying until october 15th and i said great you can do that and let the money work for you you know and hang on to it but let's at least project out what you're going to owe so that when that bill comes you're not shiting a brick exactly yeah i am not ever the person who likes to wait i just like to get it in and get it done Rip the Band-Aid off. Just yeah. rip the Band-Aid off because I just I like to know what I have now, what we're doing now, how we are operating. You know, then I can plan with that because the last thing you want to do is be like, oh, yeah, I forgot that. You know, here's uh, 40 grand I owe the government. When you're, you know? when, when you're playing with some more commas, right, putting the money to work is a different piece. So, yeah, you know, going through the exercise of knowing what your obligations are, putting the money to work, knowing that it's on a short time clock and then you come out. I think just the visibility into what you should expect is the most important thing, irrespective of where you're at and well, using the money. Yeah, and you kind of asked a question about, you know, other things that the CLA has that can help with that. Um, wealth, we have a wealth advisory uh, group as well that can help companies, especially with, you know, the managing their 401k or if they have excess cash from a raise, you know, what do you do with that in the interim when you're planning and, and going to deploy, before you deploy that capital? How can that get managed in a way that is advantageous to the business? Yeah, like uh, we just, for example, threw a couple hundred thousand dollars in a seven-month CD, right? Perfect. Um, not It's not operational. And, you know, we obviously have other cash outside of that yeah. uh, to use should you ever need it. But, like, that's a great example of uh, exactly that, right? It's some operational cash that was sitting there before it's getting put to use. Um, you know, there's a cost to having that and it's like, uh, why just not work a little bit of arbitrage, right? Yeah. Well, in, in, in our current interest environment, 
um, there are some pretty interesting opportunities to put that work that money to work. Yeah, a little bit over five percent. The only plus side to really what's going on. <laughs> kind of is. Yeah. Kind of is. Yeah. Well, it's also and just to to put a button on the whole you know tough time for raising money. Uh, higher interest rates isn't helpful, right? Because yeah. now you're yeah. now you've got angel investors that now have well you know I got all this money sitting around earning point zero one percent in my savings account. Yeah, maybe I'll deploy some into some risky startups. But now we're in five, six percent. It's like yeah, the risk hurdle change. The risk hurdle change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I, I agree. And maybe they want to sit back or have another kid or um, you know go do something yeah. philanthropic. It's all timing. Life yeah. is all about timing. So you know, one of since we're talking about current developments, I think one of the things worth mentioning too is we're seeing a big uptick in our digital group. Um, particularly yeah. because you have these startup companies, right? And they onboard with, you know, they use QuickBooks or whatever software program they use, and then they go out and they have their CRM model and their CSL model and these other software com- platforms. But not all those software platforms communicate well together. And sometimes from a managerial perspective, you want to be able to communicate between them, transfer information, and we have a digital group that does that. And we've seen big strides in that lately where whether it's the payroll piece, communicating with the accounting piece, Mm-hmm. Or just extracting big data information. What platforms are they working with? You know, a uh, whole host of them. It's well, yeah, we're pretty much a Microsoft shop. So when it comes to like you know building the data lake and getting all of the information from all the disparate um, systems, um, and I've I've now exhausted my entire knowledge of our <laughs> technical digital group. Thread every big 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 lingo. He um, made. Yeah, there was some there was some machine learning and uh, you know large language models and AI being done. So yeah, a, a, good, a good example I saw was in our healthcare group. Right, we had a, a practice with a bunch of different doctors, and they were able to drill down on revenue by doctor, by by service line, whether it was prescriptions or surgeries or what have you. And so they were able to run key financial metrics to figure out which doctors were really producing and which doctors were kind of skating by and. You know, make some financial decisions that way, and you know, it's pretty pretty cool stuff. Yes, yeah, see, it's mm-hmm. always interesting because like we do a little bit of that work, but it's not necessarily in the finance realm. It's more in like the marketing and operations realm, um, <laughs> and also IT. You know, but it's interesting the times we have had the opportunity to sort of uh, have the kimono open to us, we've been able to make some really significant strides with clients. You know, for same reasons, which is basically like you know, how do you think about your business and. Um, for us, it's less about, you know, who's making their revenue, but it's more about how do your business operations align to what's making you money, mm-hmm. right? And then how do you, um, you know, narrow in and focus in on those? Um, so uh, a same application, different domain, but yeah, extremely helpful. And yeah. that's, uh, that's really cool to hear. Now, do you guys do a lot of stuff with NetSuite as well, by chance? Now, we're more of a Sage Intact. Sage uh, Intact, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, we have a really strong implementation team. Um, and a great relationship with them. Uh, that and Acumatica, uh, but primarily on the construction uh, side of the house. Sounds like it. Yeah. 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 So a couple of our construction clients are Sage, uh, formerly yeah. Peachtree folks. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, what primary practices do you guys have at CLA while we're wrapping up here? Uh, in terms of service line or industries? Both. So, service line, it's going to be your traditional CPA practice, right? So, it's going to be tax. Audit, uh, biz ops, which is our outsourcing uh, back office accounting, but also a lot of accounting consulting uh, in there. So we work with um, you know closely held businesses and their owners. Um, we actually don't do any public company audit work. 
Um, that's you know philosophical decision on on the firm's part. We we know who we are. We're, we're a middle market firm. Uh, we're going to be two billion in revenue um, this year, but we do no public company audits because that's just a risk profile we didn't want to be a part of. Yes. Um, and then digital, uh, which is that digital transformation type group. We have uh, folks that have <clears throat> um, the, the you know data, math, engineers, and super smart people. Um, and then wealth advisory, which is uh, you know, and our wealth advisory and our t- individual tax practice have come together to be PCS or private client services. So for our our high net worth individuals um, and their businesses, we can kind of provide and kind of wrap around service there. And then from an industry perspective, uh, we've got uh, private industries. So it's going to be manufacturing distribution, technology, where we live, um, retail, professional services, um, uh, ag, and construction. And construction. We are like the largest construction uh, uh, accounting firm. That's how we got linked one. you guys through the Excellent. Yeah. So our Number older brother one. runs a framing company in Florida. Uh, you know, and they're um, yeah they're doing a decent decent amount, but they definitely concrete. need some back office concrete. help. So, um, if they solve it, is this all a business? So it, yeah, it, was, it wasn't a joke. It, it wasn't framing. It oh, used oh, to own a framing company. It's now a concrete company. Uh, oh, okay. Both. <laughs> yeah. But whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, so as long as, long as he's you? got a good foundation, that's all yeah. that really matters. No, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> you guys operate out of Florida or all 50 states? Yeah, I think uh, 36 states, 125 offices, uh, national firm, eighth largest nationally. Uh, we launched CLA Global in July of 22. Um, so we've probably got another you know, six or seven new firms that have joined our net, our network uh, globally. So nice, yeah, just uh, continued growth. Well, Matt and Patrick, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you guys on. Thank you very much. It's been yes. a treat. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank appreciate you for you flying f- down. It has been oh. wonderful. <laughs> it was the least I can do. Yep. <laughs> and for those of you listening, we'll catch up next time. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.